Okay, nothing but acres of tar to harbour and cement, and it's city limits. It's uh, speaking of tar and cement and those sort of things. It's our housing day. It's the third Wednesday of the month. You can't go out of the bu- building yet because you've got to get a cup of tea. Um, Hang around. <laughs> I'm talking to Gab Reed, who was heading out the door, but said she also wanted a cup of tea. Look, I'll pour it. Seeing we started the show, I'll pour the tea. That'll overcome a problem. Here we go. T1. T2. Oh, Eleanor, did you? I should have asked you if you wanted a cup of tea. Um, oh, very good, very good. That's bad to hear that, really, because we haven't got a cup. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Eleanor McInerney's... Uh, oh, actually, if I were a DJ going back to those days when DJs <laughs> raved on, we'd say, she's a blast from the past here at 3CR, because she, uh, Eleanor, of course, was well-known in this studio a long time ago, and she's back. Very nervously, Panelina, um, so you do all the time. <laughs> and... Um, and indeed, um, I should mention that Meg, because of work commitments, is only coming in a couple of times a month now. So we'll, um, we'll so but she'll be here next week, Meg. Um, she is putting making money ahead of this, which I think is very selfish, but that's how it goes. Some people. Um, anyway, today it is housing. We're going to be talking to Howard Morosi, our regular commentator from for Peep for Friends of Public Housing. Um, in about 20 minutes or so, and also we're going to have Shane McGrath from Housing with the H Action Group coming into the studio. With it, so we'll talk to both of them about housing issues later in the show. But a couple of items before we get to that, and um, I was interested in an item that came out uh, a week or so ago um, about problem gambling, um, because we they reckon people now self exclude themselves. But I don't know if you saw this story, but. Uh, it was written by Royce Miller and Ben Schneiders, um, and it was um, gambling experts have called for identity checks and tougher policing of gambling venues as evidence mounts that self-excluded problem gamblers are playing pokies unhindered at Crown Casino and suburban pubs. And a bloke, uh, an anti-gambling bloke, uh, who in fact excluded himself from a number of venues, then went out with the journos and was able to walk into every venue and play them without anyone <laughs> recognising him or any f- even so-called facial recognition uh, didn't work either. So it's, uh, it obviously ain't working. And, uh, and it was pointed out by, um, by Charles Livingston, who, of course, is a, an expert on this out at Monash. Um, he said self-exclusion worked better in European casinos where personal identification had to be shown when entering. The ID is then checked against the central register of exclusions. Said Australian governments and gambling regulators should look at a similar model, etc. Given the plethora of gambling opportunities in Australia, self-exclusion without the use of central account-based gambling or verification of ID is a smokescreen for industry to claim it's doing something about harmful gambling um, without doing anything, of course. Um, so there's that's just interesting that one about uh, about uh, problem gambling and the fact that. Uh, what they say or what they claim doesn't actually work, which is rather interesting. Uh, we also have talked, of course, in the last year or so and done interviews about these dreadful fires and uh, and toxic waste getting into waterways, etc. We've been talking about them for a long time in relation to the Tullamarine toxic waste dump. And I'm going to have a sip of tea while I do that. Um, just, just, say, just say something. <laughs> um, what, what's coming into your mind right now other than Kevin's an idiot asked me to do this? <laughs> no, I'm just happy to be back at 3CR behind this panel. Oh, yes. Listening to you just like the old days. It's great. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Beautifully said. <laughs> and just in the last week or so, 
Um, and I'm, I was visiting someone who comes from Williamstown last week. He's in a nursing home now, but I meant to ask him and I realised I had forgotten after I left. But um, a suspected oil contamination at a Williamstown Creek has raised fears it could threaten wildlife such as pelicans and other seabirds. The Environment Protection Authority, where environmental protection, I think, doesn't actually, it's a real misnomer, but anyway, was alerted to the incident um, when residents reported toxic fumes wafting from the Paisley Drain Creek. The waterway borders the Paisley Chalice Wetlands and Jawbone Conservation Reserve, which are both popular bird-watching and walking spots. Uh, Williamstown father of two, Matthew Miller, said he woke to an unbearable odour from the creek directly behind his back fence. You can smell it all through the house, probably the closest thing, etc. Miller said he felt sick when he found the source, which appeared to be an oil slick on top of the water and into the scrubland. He said he was worried it could harm the habitat for seabirds and immediately informed the EPA. EPA staff visited the site yesterday, that was a couple of weeks ago. Residents have warned to avoid contact with the water, so it's even even more following the uh, dreadful destruction, of course, of Stony Creek over a year ago now when that awful fire occurred, and we talked to local people about that at the time and I went and had a look at it and the, the damage was terrible. A, a friend who friend who took me, who was an expert in these things, said she went out a couple of weeks ago and there are some signs of improvement but it's very slow so uh, we'll see what happens. But here's a good item uh, you'll be very pleased with Eleanor actually um, uh, because I know you're a great fan of BHP and their, their contribution to the environment, yes, which BHP, which is a great title because it's, you know, bloody huge profits and also bloody huge polluter. But they have been boasting about their uh, boasting about their environmental credentials at their AGM. They mentioned that a couple of weeks ago and the same week they announced they're going to invest more in gas and oil, which I thought was a touch of a contradiction. But, uh, no, no, I mean, it's very clean probably the way they do it. I'm sure they figured it out. Oh, they wouldn't. They they would do it very well. Yes. I mean, that's right. Anyway, Mackenzie, Andrew Mackenzie, the Scottish bloke who's been the chief executive for a few years now, he's leaving, and you'll be pleased to know he's getting a um, a handshake of thirty seven mil to walk away with over and above his normal salary. That's that's not bad, is it? Thirty seven mil. Yeah, I like to try and figure out how many years, um, including like past my death, I would have to work. <laughs> To get right. close to. Yes, you can put your body to work doing yeah. something underground, feeding worms or, or something. Or my skeleton eventually. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Just keep going. But I always were. I never know. I mean, these people get all this bloody money, but but what does it matter? I mean, beyond a million or something, what can you do with it once you've sort of bought all the things you think you need, etc.? Can you help me there? I guess it's just to have a, a stake in the power system that keeps you <laughs> keeps you accumulating it. So you get you get a stake in that. Oh, that's very what you good. buy. I yes, guess. right. Yeah, I guess I you're right. <laughs> um, now here's one you'll also be interested in, Eleanor, because you've just been talking about the massive amount of money you make so you can <laughs> knock up the thirty seven mil in no time. Right. Well, um, there's a front page headline in Monday's Fin Review. It was um, down women on top in CEO pay stakes. Now and it says women have topped the ranks of CEO pay for the first time with Macquarie Chief Executive Shamara Wickramanayake, Australia's highest paid CEO after receiving more than 18 mil. Wow, we finally made it. You've made it. So the glass ceiling is smashed. Uh, now, it's interesting that the women on top, etc. So you'd think, well, given that women are on top, they're probably the top several positions. They, they, they yeah, etc. Well... Go to page three where the story continues, women top CEO pay ranks for first time is the headline again, and they've listed the top 50 in, in pay order of 
executives of the of company, the big companies in Australia. And yes, there she is, number one, Shamara. Of the 50, Eleanor, take a stab. How many do you reckon are women? One. <laughs> three. <laughs> Keep working. Five. No, no, you, you're underestimating. You're on too of far, 50, too far. Not four. three, not five. Four. four. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Got it. And, and uh, the others are well down the list, by the way, including at 49, Alison Watkins, who's in charge of Coca-Cola Amatil, who does a terrific job for the environment, for public health. She, uh, she always comes across as this responsible person speaking for business. And uh, given that Amatil, in fact, of course, originally made Benton and Hedges and cigarettes and then diverted up to Coca-Cola and junk Sugar food drinks, and rubbish, yeah. their contribution to public health over many, many years has been enormous. It has. It has. It It has has. a very large uh, consequence. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Uh, Now, also this week, uh, the Victorian government's come under attack again because it won't allow gas uh, production. It won't allow uh, fracking. Um, It it, um, and it's it's it claims and it probably is to some degree at least working toward far more reliance on renewable energy. And the federal government keeps attacking it and, and, and blaming renewable energy in Victoria for putting up prices and doing all sorts of things. And just this week, in fact, the um, federal minister, uh, Taylor, has said he wants to do individual deals with states and he wants to squeeze Victoria out of the individual deals because they're not doing nearly enough to... To introduce to, fracking. Well, for, <laughs> for reliability. Well, no, it's reliability and, and lowering costs. Well, you've got to understand okay. these things. Um, reliability this summer. And um, and indeed, the the blame he always puts on renewable energy being the real problem in terms of unreliability this summer. Now, that's all very well, except at the moment, um, two of the Two of the major coal-fired power stations are closed down because they're being renewed or updated or there's some renovation works or something going on. So where's our grid coming from, the coal-fired power stations? Well, yes, well, there's some coal coming out, but, um, yeah, it's a real problem, isn't it? Um, So while he blames that, a headline the same day in the Financial Review said Victoria's wholesale power prices hit record after coal plant closures. So... It suggests the reason for the prices the could be the coal problem, not mm. the renewable problem. But, but I'm sure Angus knows what he's talking about. Uh, well, he knows what he's talking about in that he knows how to direct blame in a way that mm. is useful to him, I guess. Yeah, and he, <laughs> and he and Matt, his mate Matt, they want to build a coal-fired power station at government expense. Well, yeah. Who else would pay for it? Well, that's <laughs> <laughs> the very point. <laughs> so there we are. The other one that um, has really been in the news this week uh, and I found really interesting was uh, this attack on China. Um, and um, not that I want to go into it as a massive uh, supporter of China, let me tell you, but but, um, but it seems to be singled out in areas where maybe the other people could be just as equal to yeah. blame, I would have thought, particularly in areas like human rights, like the couple of our politicians, including a well-known trained killer, um, have been banned because they made comments about human rights in China. I suppose other people could equally suggest there's some the odd human rights problem with locking up refugees, uh, with the treatment of indigenous people. Mm, just the odd long-standing. Yeah, with the, with, even with the in, ignoring the fact the environment is killing people and displacing people in the Pacific, that sort of thing. But anyway, that's just a minor thought. I mean, I'm, I, but nonetheless... 
Uh, last Friday, or last Thursday, the Fin Review came out with a front-page headline, Unis to Expose China Ties, and they're going to force unis to um, divulge where they have um, research grants, etc., from foreign countries. Universities will have to fully disclose who they're working with on research projects and all financial dealings with other countries and donors under sweeping new rules. The other countries, unfortunately, seem to only involve one um, and um, and in fact, uh, Alexander Downer, one of our very favourite people, came out two days ago and said the Morrison government should not kowtow to China to resolve diplomatic tensions and is urging Beijing to remember that its economic growth has been fuelled by Australian raw materials, etc. So, so they just keep raving on and going on. Um, and in fact... Um, it, the one about the unis, the education minister, who is uh, Tian, told universities he had ways of compelling them to take action on foreign interference, reinforcing comments he made earlier that he had blunt instruments to use if they didn't. He said he expected universities to take the government's advice on foreign interference very seriously, and if one of them did not follow up on the warning of a security agency, there were laws in place he could use to make sure they did. And these include acting against the university through the Tertiary Education Quality and Standards Agency, which is the industry regulator, or writing new rules into individual contracts each university has with government for funding. So you actually threaten their funding if they um, continue to work with, say, say China. Um, the group of eight universities said the new rules, etc. These include a ban on work visas for individuals who are employed, funded or otherwise sponsored by the China's Chinese People's Liberation Army and another called for the Protect Our Universities Act which would require students from China to undergo extra background screening before doing sensitive... Now this one's in the US because the, the, mm -hmm. um, the group of eight said these our laws were better than the the massive interference laws in the US, and in the US that's what they have to do. They have to, uh, in fact, undergo extra background screening before doing sensitive research, etc. Um, and that's where we're heading for here, um, which I find all very interesting because also on the same day, and a separate story but a much related story, the Morrison government is pulling out all stops to make cheap money available for rare earths and other critical minerals pro mineral projects as it works with the wait for it, United States, on ways to reduce China's near stranglehold on supply. The government will set up a dedicated office within the Department of Industry as it looks to secure critical minerals projects in Australia with an emphasis on those strategically important in defence. Surprise, surprise, defence. What do you know? Defence Minister Linda Reynolds said the government's moves would help deliver the capability that keeps Australia safe, so we need to have lots more weapons and things to keep us safe, you see. The government will make projects that boost mining and processing of rare earths and other key ingredients in military technology eligible for financial support through Export Finance Australia, including the Defence Export Facility, so we give them the money for it. Great, isn't it? Gets better. The government is also tweaking rules around the much maligned $5 billion Northern Australian Infrastructure Facility, so the granting of its low interest loans does not exclude projects from additional taxpayer funded support. The critical minerals push comes as uh, Matt Canavan, and previously aforementioned Matt, was meeting US Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross yesterday, in fact, and we don't know what came out of that yet, but uh, or Tuesday, their time, Washington time, so yeah. 
Australia and the US have made it clear they are worried about rare earth supply in particular because the resources are needed in leading edge technology including guided missile systems and other defence equipment. Now that's leading, that's for sure. Um, and Linus, the Australian company, which is you know our, our one rare earth or our biggest rare earth mob, it's understood the US military has welcomed moves by Linus to develop rare earths processing capacity in Texas under a joint venture with Blue Line Corporation that would produce high value um, dysprosium and terbium, whatever they are. Um, but again, um, we're doing it with the US as a defence thing to stop China. Now, I raise that because at unis, of course, we, now, we know that the biggest US military companies, the biggest US arms companies, the merchants of death, mm. in fact, are playing a key role on our campuses, uh, sponsoring courses and uh, sponsoring research. lectures and sponsoring mm. research, etc. So apparently US military companies, defence companies... That foreign influence is not unwelcome. Is no, that's, that's right, mm. that's right. But, of course, if you happen to be... Um, if you happen to be a Chinese company or a China, China at all doing anything, and it's just—it's uh, just this incredible. And I, you know, the, the the fact that we're just going along with it is amazing. That whatever the U.S. tells us about China, we just do, and it's getting more and more dangerous now. I don't want to be an apologist for China, particularly because I think it's just another capitalist society these days. Other than it's there's a lot of more state control over the people, I suspect. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I think that we're being very hypocritical, if you don't mind my saying so. You might disagree I, with uh, that. I agree. Do <laughs> <laughs> you really? And also tapped into a long-running anti-Chinese racism in this country and plays to all that. So yes, of course, that's right. That's mm. right. And yes, if China was a, a white Anglo-Saxon company, mm. we, mightn't be, we mightn't be so upset, might we? So that's that. I think we'll leave all that rubbish comment there. Um, look, we're going to play a track. Then we're going to get on the line. We're going to get um, Howard Morosi. And talk to him about housing, and then shortly Shane McGrath is going to wander into the studio as well. But just to lead us into the housing and talk about public housing and the need and uh, to help those who may be a little bit down and out, here's Nina Simone talking about just that. Once I lived the life of a millionaire Spending my money, I didn't care Taking my friends out for a mighty good time Buying bootleg liquor, champagne and wine Then I began to fall so Had no place to go And if I ever get my hands on a dollar again I'm gonna hold on to it Till the eagle grin I said nobody knows you Long lost friend 
that's a reasonably good track to lead into a discussion on public housing. Nobody knows you when you're down and out. That was Nina Simone, of course. Um, and we just before the break, we talked about racism affecting our relationship with China. Well, of course, Nina Simone was a great fighter for the rights of black people in America. And in fact, she, she often she'd get to an audience, find it was all white and not bother to even go on stage <laughs> or walk off. <laughs> anyway, that was Nina Simone. On the line, we've got Howard Morosi from Friends of Public Housing. Howard, um, how are you this morning? I'm very well. And good, you? good. Glad to hear your health. Good. Yeah, my health's okay. Right over here on a bike. Um, anything you wanted to raise? I've got a couple of things I wanted to raise with you, but anything you wanted to to update us on at the, from our side? Yeah, yeah. There's always a lot to update. Um, so first, we've got the rallies, the Defend and Extend Public Housing Australia rallies uh, every Wednesday in November. So today. 5.30 till 6.30 at Parliament, at Steps of Parliament, same next week. Um, there's been a lot happening uh, with local councils um, and also in state parliament, uh, the Legislative Council, the Upper House, has announced a homelessness inquiry and we'd encourage people to put in a submission to that. Uh, the submissions are open for a while longer. Um, we would recommend all you need to say is that uh, public housing is needed to provide housing for all homelessness. And uh, we've been told that the um, the uh, people that are running the inquiry would like to hear from people apart from the many homelessness services that have usually put in submissions. So I encourage people to do that. If it's OK, I'll send through the link, uh, which could be put up on the, um, on the uh, website through to our website. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, the government's also changing uh, rental regulations to um, uh, to fit in with the changes to the uh, rental laws. Uh, I think Shane will probably be able to talk more about that. Yep. Um, there's consultation uh, about that, so people can put in uh, comments until the 18th of December. Uh, I started to have a look through it. Um, it runs the explanatory document act itself runs for 200 pages, so uh, a bit of a challenge. Um, it mainly talks about things like uh, um, your right to uh, you know good facilities like heating and and uh, the need for uh, landlords to um, to do checks on gas units and that sort of stuff. And there have to be a certain number of working burners on staves, that sort of thing. It's all in there, isn't it? That sort of stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you're a renter, you can have a look at that. I'm not sure. I understand it also does have some application to public housing tenants as well, but I haven't managed to find anything yet. Um, so that's that. We can also put up a link for that if people are interested. Um, also, the Melbourne City Council has put forward a submission... Uh, or change their policy actually with a view to change with uh, with a view to putting a submission to the state government about uh, affordable housing. Um, they don't really talk about public housing, so what they're talking about is inclusionary zoning. Um, so the point is, inclusionary zoning can be for public housing or for uh, community housing, but um, they're not. They haven't specified. Um, either actually, they're talking about uh, inclusionary zoning for affordable housing, which is very mm. different. Affordable housing means housing which is uh, rented at 20% below the prevailing uh, private rental. Um, 
and also they made reference to the public housing renewal program. Is this, is this uh, looking at know, affordable housing in terms of rental affordability or affordability in terms of buyers as well? No, it's just, I think it's just rent. Just rent. So okay, yeah. what, they're, what, they're talking, what they're saying is that their voluntary policy, they've had a, a policy of uh, a voluntary policy for um, developers to include uh, affordable housing in their new developments and it hasn't been taken up, surprise, surprise. Mm. So now they want the state government to make it mandatory across the state. Well, um, indeed, the, the industry itself has come out in the last couple of weeks and said that uh, forcing affordable housing in, in, in developments um, would in fact um, raise the cost of housing and uh, it would backfire. And if you, if you bring in rules to force affordable housing, they won't be able to afford to provide affordable housing, which I thought was a bit of a problem. Um, but um, that the industry itself is really complaining about it now. Yeah, I mean, uh, they always say that if you um, put a cap on rents, then rents will go up. You know, that's the usual oxymoronic argument. Mm. Um, that just means that, uh, you know, their profits will have to go down a bit. Oh dear. Or... Um, you know, or or the uh, people they on sell to won't be able to charge as much. So you know, it's just a nonsense argument yeah. as usual. Yeah. Um, so uh, as well as that, Mooney, Van Mooney Valley Council uh, was considering the um, state government application to uh, demolish one of the uh, blocks on the um, Ascot Vale public housing estate in Dunlop Street. Um, so Mooney, Mooney Valley Council is actually a Labor council, so they they just work in partnership with the state government. Um, they encourage the, the Save Ascot Vale Estate the public housing tenants to put in a, an objection, and when it was put in, they were shut down. Uh, a whole a group of people turned up to the hearing, and they were told when they got there, after the submission was put in, and uh, no objection was raised by the council. They were told that they were only talking about planning matters like trees and vehicular access and not to be hijacked by the public housing agenda. Um, so, uh, And the worrying thing about it is that it looks like um, they've actually set up the uh, housing estate uh, to actually take the vast majority of growth in Ascot Vale. So they're talking about 68 per cent of forecast growth in Ascot Vale is expected to be accommodated within the housing estate. So in other words, all the, um, the increased population problem will just be shoveled off to the housing estate. And people should be aware at the moment that that housing estate uh, consists of about 33 blocks and only one of the blocks uh, is in need of demolition. All the others are actually in very good condition. Yeah, good God. The usual, isn't it? Shane McGrath from Housing with Age Action Group has talked into the studio, uh, clutching a coffee in his hand. Absolutely. Eschewing uh, our tea, unfortunately. <laughs> and um, um, a, a little earlier, if you probably didn't hear, cause, um, but uh, Howard mentioned about new rental rules and you might be able to elaborate on it. Howard, could you just um, go over that again so Shane can elaborate? Yeah, Shane, you probably know about the, um, the, the proposed regulations uh, supporting the change in uh, legislation for... Uh, rental standards. Yeah, those rental are one of the things I wanted to talk about today. Oh, yeah, okay. well, you would. I'll leave that to you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to do a bit later then when we... Oh, okay. sure. Yeah, okay. All right, yeah. we'll go to that. Howard, a couple of months ago, 
I think it was a couple of months ago, I mentioned there was an article in our local rag about the, the Grand Place estate and it mentioned that re residents would get priority when it's rebuilt. And you asked if uh, more, more detail of that. Now, I managed to dredge out the article and I'll just, uh, we'll just go through it. Um, it says a neglected social housing village. Well, that's, um, that's, a, that's also a judgment, isn't it? Uh, will be replaced with almost 200 new units, 119 of which will be public housing. The 82-unit Grand Place will soon be demolished by the state government to make way for 198 homes with 60% of a year mark for social housing. The remaining 79 will be private. A.B. Jennings will develop the site, but then with housing provider Women's Housing to manage the public dwellings, a community garden will be retained, etc. So far, comment. Yeah, so my, I actually commented on that last last uh, month. So what, what happened was... Um, uh, so they've actually changed the proposed proportion of private housing there, which is good. Um, but uh, whether or not they actually retain ownership of the rest, which is, I think is about two-thirds from those figures, in uh, government name, they're going to uh, let the um, Housing Association manage it. Yeah, now, what, right. that means, what that means is that all the things that really matter to the tenants, like rent and security of tenure, and admissibility, um, they're all up to the discretion of that housing association and not the, not government policy. So effectively, even if it's retained in ownership by government and managed by those by that housing association, they have the discretion to implement their own policy and not follow uh, government policy, which means that effectively they're not public housing tenants anymore, yeah. except in name. Um, what happened was at one of the uh, hearings of uh, the committee that the, um, has been set up to to facilitate the Grand Place development, that housing association has given a commitment, an oral commitment, to maintain the uh, the rent and the um, uh, security of tenure as per is currently. So, this, I mean, if they if they if they honour that, well, that's well and good, but. Um, you know, you know, everything, anything can change with a with a private organisation. Yeah, yeah, and it does say former residents will be offered the chance to return, and women off the state housing priority list will then be favoured as tenants. Uh, but the construction won't be completed in 2022, so the the current residents will be pretty heavily dispersed by then. I would have thought they, they won't. Very few come back. The whole thing is uh, in a situation where it's not necessary to demolish an estate that process is unnecessarily disruptive to the lives of those tenants, right? So they have, they're forced to move. They don't want to move. They have to move. Once they've moved, it's then disruptive to them to come back, right? Because of, it normally takes a couple of years before the thing's ready, as, as in this case. So they don't want to come back. Only 20% roughly come back. And the government knows that. So it's no big deal for them to offer a right of return. Yeah. Obviously, it's good for the ones that do want to come back. You know that, that that for various reasons they might have friends there, and you know they're happy to uproot themselves again. Um, but as I said, it's not necessary in many cases. Uh, probably Grand Place as well as Ascot Vale for the demolition to take place in the first place. Yeah, and of course older residents coming back, um, they've already, already almost come to you already, wouldn't they, Shane? I mean, these people being dislocated by these things, yeah, displaced by these things. Our outreach workers have been assisting a lot of people in those kind of situations. Mm, yeah. 
Yeah, and the local member, Tim Reid, um, said, said given the amount of people on the public housing waiting list, it was unacceptable to give any public land to private developers. While this is promising, it still sees public land going to private developers, which is a pretty important point. Uh, Richard Wynne, um, the, uh, the wonderful minister, said population growth means we need more social housing. This redevelopment creates 37 extra public and community housing homes while replacing outdated buildings with modern energy efficient homes. So it sounds wonderful. Yeah, well, what he says is true, but the thing is, uh, we don't need to do that, right? We don't need you don't need to displace those people. They're they're quite capable of living in the the homes as they are if they're properly maintained, right? Probably, um, and uh, as you said before, we've got such a big waiting list that we can't afford to be building private. Uh, saw somewhere else in the in the last few couple of weeks or something where um, where Wynne also made the point that it's much better to have this mixture of public and private it's great better for the community etc but we've mentioned many times that these estates generally tend to divide anyway and uh, separate the the public from the private yeah that's that's what's happened at Carlton for example you know there was a whole that, that was one and Kensington too I think you know that was one of the rationales for it and then they just go ahead and, and uh, put up walls and they put them in, in worse, worse places on the estate. They don't give access to gardens, things like that. So, oh. you know, when it comes down to it, you know, it's, the rationale doesn't even stack up. And what we don't know, um, I guess, how it is that, because Kate Shaw's research into the Kensington estate and the fact that the private company was virtually given the land, uh, we don't know what the economic arrangement is between the government and A.B. Jennings in this case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's another another uh, very questionable element of it which hasn't really been uh, addressed by the state government and the whole question of uh, having a private developer at all really yeah, as opposed to I mean if you're going to have a massing, massive housing development program it's much more efficient for the state government to go back to the way it was before which was having its own office of housing like, I actually know someone that used to be an architect in that office of housing and um, he's adamant that things were actually a lot more efficient because the architects used to just... That, that was their sole responsibility, to design houses which were appropriate for public housing estates, and they got them to a very good standard. Um, the uh, ability to go and consult with someone uh, in another part of the building department was very easy. You just go up to a higher floor in the building. It would take one afternoon instead of having to do it now... We, where it's run by a private organisation, where things can take weeks to to um, to uh, to work out. And the other thing was, at the moment, uh, tenders have to be put to uh, to the government um, in order to um, uh, win win the contract. And then the government's got to supervise that. Whereas before, it was all done without the need to have that arm's length supervision, uh, which is a much more efficient way of doing it. You're, not, you're so, not suggesting that the public sector is more efficient than the private sector. Uh, just, just a suggestion <laughs> for people to consider. Good heavens. 
I mean, having been having been educated in economics myself for six years, two years in high school and four years in university, that suggestion never actually entered my mind. But right. I think that had more to do with the way we were educated than the actual facts. Yeah, yeah. All right. Also, related to all this, and this is one where Shane's organisation will come into it again, um, a report that... Um, more Australians are going hungry. I think we mentioned this on the show a few weeks ago in our comment, but more than one in five Australians reported going hungry in the past 12 months. At least once a week, three in ten food insecure people go a whole day without eating at all. Children represent 22% of all food insecure Australians. Women are one and a half times more likely to have gone hungry in the past 12 months, etc., etc. So all this proves that we need, desperately need the sort of housing we're talking about. Exactly right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's just going to get worse. The, the, house, the private housing market's going back to the way it was before, whereas in, in Sydney and Melbourne, you're looking at um, uh, increases in uh, in house prices that began in roughly 10 to 15 percent a year. It's just keep it just keeps going. You know, it's a yeah. generational travesty. Well, all the financial pages are saying yeah, the market's zooming up again. It's all wonderful, uh, yeah. but they're, they're also well, attacking. I was going to say they're also attacking the new the new um, first home buyers grant that the government's going to bring in next year, saying that will increase prices, which it probably will. But um, but, but, but if you're yeah. even actually worried about increasing prices, then get to the real main cause. You know, don't pick on a little subsidy for a first home buyer. And that's the other thing. Like a couple of years ago, we suddenly had this change in sentiment in the newspapers to say that uh, we're facing a crisis of of unaffordable housing. And then as soon as the um, uh, Australian Prudential uh, Regulatory Authority did something to restrict loans to investors, and it affected, it actually started to bring prices down, we're told it's going to be a disaster to to stop it. So it's no longer a crisis. It's Mm. now a a boon that the prices are going up again. Well, the crisis is Um, with the people who who need it. I mean, those figures on poverty and also... News story this week that Victorians are signing up to more payday loans than any other state. Um, the nation's payday lending capital, Victoria, with almost one one point one million loans issued, etc. And you know they're paying they're paying uh, interest rates of up to four hundred and seven percent, and they get into as we know into a cycle where you have to borrow to pay the original loan, and away you go. Um, so so all these issues mean that that we desperately need what we're talking about. And at the same time, they point out that Coles and Woolworths have eased hostilities and now their prices are increasing for food. So the poor are going to pay more for that they can't afford in the first place. Yeah, but good for the investor. Yeah, great. And that's really what counts, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, when you say um, the real reason rather than a, a, a home a government grant, you're not suggesting greed, I hope, are you, Howard? Uh, yeah, sorry about that. Right. I hope it doesn't offend too many of your, your investor listeners <laughs> and uh, we got plenty and destroy of your, uh, your listener base, but sorry about that. The advertisers are fleeing the show as we speak. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. There goes our salary. <laughs> exactly. All right. Any more, Howard, you want to talk about? Or is that it? Uh, there's lots more. I'll just mention the Labor Party has uh, set up a uh, Labor for Housing group. And they put up a resolution that went uh, was passed by the recent state conference. Um, uh, if you have a look at it, and I can also put up a link to that. Uh, it's on. Actually, just go to Facebook Labor for Public Housing, um, and you'll see. Unfortunately, um, 
it sounds good on first reading, but when you actually look at what they say, for example, they've actually said that the um, uh, public housing renewal program is is a good thing, um, and they they really fail to uh, explain the difference between public housing and community housing, uh, and they, they're only calling on uh, 1,600 new social housing dwellings per year over the next 20 years, which is just ridiculous. Mm. So it's it's a minimal thing which the, which the government could easily reach without having an impact on the problem because we've got we need 40,000 new public housing units now and the Greens have actually committed to doing that over six years. So they're talking about uh, meeting that, what we've got now over 20 years instead of the Greens six years. So it's again, it's a snow job and unfortunately it's going to divert a whole lot of attention away from the real solutions. Mm. Any comment on this? Uh, I Look, looks good when you first first glance at it, but not not so good when you examine it closely. Sounds like a good summary of Labor Party policy across the board. Yep, yep, yeah, very clever. Yeah, the the um, and of course we're not only talking about public housing estates being privatised, but we're pub, you know, the government's selling more and more public land, and much of much of that lands in spots which would be ideal for public housing, as we've mentioned this many times, but it ends up in private hands and private developments. Well, the good thing about that, at least I'll give The Age some credit. The Age did run some articles last month about that. They also published a letter from uh, someone by the name of Kerry Byrne, yeah, who Kerry. I've come across in my time. Kerry's from Port um, Melbourne, public housing in Port Melbourne, Kerry lives, yeah. 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 And that was, that was a good letter, uh, which pretty much got to the point, and it also talked about public housing as well. So I'll give them credit for that. And they've also run some stuff from uh, Kate Shaw and and things on public housing yeah. as well. Yeah, we've got Kate on this program next week, by the way, um, discussing, the, among other things, the new books. Tell her I'll be listening ardently. <laughs> okay. So well. be careful what you said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, all right. Well, Howard, thanks for that today, and um, we'll, we'll catch up with you. We're going to our last, it's our last program, actually, the third Wednesday next month is our last program for the year, yeah. but um, we'll, um, we'll catch up with you then again. Great. I'll okay. speak again. Thanks, Howard. Bye. Radio and um, Shane McGrath's here. Shane, um, well, all that stuff about poverty, I mean, it's something that comes through your doors every day, I'd imagine, isn't it, these sort of problems? Yeah, I mean, literally we run a drop-in service for people who are at homeless or at risk of homelessness. The um, Actually, what I... Sorry, we're nearly out of time, so I'm just going to launch into my spiel. The, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. two things that I wanted to talk about today, which is two reviews. So you're ignoring my question, eh? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. uh, two consultations that the government's got going on at the moment um, that, are, that affect our members. Um, one that you and Howard mentioned is the uh, rental regulations. So when the Residential Tenancies Amendments Act passed last year, um, a lot of the detail of the Act is left to the regulations, uh, and now the government's consulting about regulations. So if you go on the Engage Victoria website, there's a page about rental regulations. Um, in fact, there's hundreds of pages about rental regulations. Mm, Howard said 200, yeah. That sounds about right. I, I printed it out without checking how many pages it was, and then my boss looked at me like I was an absolute mm. psychopath. The, um, <laughs> the regulations cover a lot of quite important yeah, areas. I was looking at you that way at the moment as well. Covers a lot of important areas. For our members, one of the most important is uh, minimum standards for rental properties. So the act that passed last year said they will introduce minimum standards for rental properties, which hasn't existed in Victoria before. Um, and the, the regulations will decide what those standards are. 
Um, one area that is a particular concern for us is about heating. Um, uh, you know, we've long advocated for good energy efficient heating to be a, a, a essential part of all rental properties. Um, the legis the proposed regulations require that heating be installed in a main living area, um, but they don't require that insulation be installed or that draft proofing be installed or anything like that. And I'm not an expert in this area, but it raises a concern for me, um, you know, both as an advocate for older renters and as a renter myself, if my landlord has to come and put a heater in my property, because there's no heater in our lounge room, um, it's going to cost him money that's going to get passed on to us in the form of a higher rent. Uh, but is there is there actually going to be any saving in terms of the utility bills if we don't have insulation? So all that extra heat is just, you know, literally flying mm. out the window. Um the problem, and the, the department certainly is aware of the need for insulation. The problem is that if you ever want to see the face of true fear, uh, you just need to mention insulation to a politician or bureaucrat. Um, Pink Bats casts a long shadow over any discuss, any sensible discussion about these sorts of things. So there's nothing uh, in, the, in the minimum standards to be phased in over three years. There's nothing about insulation draft proofing, some of those other basic energy efficiency requirements. Mm. So Just going back a fraction... Mm. In your own situation, with this, if there's no heater in the living room, how do you heat the thing? Have you got a, have we've got a portable a, thing or something? Yeah, that's right. We've got a portable heater plugged yeah, in. Right. Uh, and we've got lots of blankets. That's right. We, uh, <laughs> Two feather sets. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so there's lots of things in the regulations. It's things like what's the prescribed form for the notice to vacate, What's the what, what terms can and can't be included in a lease, um, what information must the landlord disclose before you start a tenancy, what information is the landlord not allowed to ask you as a prospective renter before they rent you the property, um, what modifications you can do without the landlord's permission, what modifications the landlord can't unreasonably refuse. There's a lot uh, a lot in there. Um, if, if you're a tenant and you're interested in the, the sorts of areas that the regulations are going to cover, it is worth having a look. I said there's, you know, there's a lot there, um, but you can probably you know, skim through to the parts that are the most important to you. Um, or feed your, feed your input, input through to the organisations that represent tenants. So if you're an older renter, that's us. We'd, be, we'd love to hear from people about what their priorities are. Um, if you're a younger renter, maybe Tenants Victoria, Homeless Law Council. Oh, I, sh- I shouldn't be telling everyone that these organisations want their views. But there are plenty of organisations that, that do represent tenants and we'll be making submissions about these things. Um, the other, sorry, the submissions for that are due, I think, on December 18. Um, we'll be talking about this at our annual general meeting, which is tomorrow, and I'll, I'll come back to the, the AGM for anyone who's interested. The other review that's going on at the moment is the Retirement Villages Act review. Um, so you listeners might remember in 2017, there was a parliamentary inquiry into retirement housing, and one of the recommendations that came out of that was a review of the Retirement Villages Act, which is from 1986. It's been kind of patched up a, a few times since then, but it's, it's still pretty bare bones, and it doesn't... Re- well, I mean, what we've seen from some of the big media stories about retirement villages is mm. doesn't really protect residents in the ways that you would want. Um, so there's an issues paper for that. Um, keen listeners will be happy to know that one's only 60 pages. Um, the And it does, actually, the Engage Victoria page for that one does include some very, very helpful and convenient summaries of the key issues. Um, there's also a consultation for interested residents this Friday in the in Melbourne. Um, they already held one in Geelong and one in Shepparton. Uh, if you're a resident and you're interested in getting along to that... Um, that's can... to do with the residential tenancy. No, sorry, that's the Retirement Villages Act. Retirement Village, at least. So, so Retirement yeah. Village residents. 
Um, we're pretty concerned that the issues paper doesn't seem to get at the the biggest issues in the sector, that it kind of fritters around the edges rather than getting to the heart of things. Mm, such as? Uh, well, I think, for example, of, you know, the, the big media attention that's fallen on retirement villages over the last few years started with the Four Corners slash Age investigation. Uh, and what mm. that found is that the, the chain, Avio in particular, mm. um, has contracts where you pay a deferred management fee as part of when you leave the village, um, you pay a deferred management fee as a percentage of what you sell the unit for. And that's common across the industry, but they found that in some AVO contracts, the deferred management fee could be as much as 40% of the sale price of your unit after two years of living there. Um, more commonly, we tend to see things like it accrues at a rate of about 3 to 5% a year, which can be quite high. But this was essentially 20% a year, 40% of your sale price after two years. And the consequence of that is that it's in AVO's interest to turf you out after two years. So they had this thing they called churn, or the journalist alleged they had this mm. thing called called churn, where they would basically funnel residents in and out. They would have targets for how many residents they wanted out each year. Mm. So they could maximise those profits uh, at the expense of, of residents who, you know, deserve to be able to age in place. The questions about DMFs in, in the in the issues paper, great opportunity to ask things like, you know, should there be a cap on DMFs? Should there be a cap on how quickly they can accrue? Um, you know, like some of the, some of the you know what what should we should do? Should they to, exist at all? What, sure. What should we do? I mean, there's benefits to DMFs in some circumstances. The the questions about what happens when they become exploitative, the you know what should we do to limit churn? Um, is churn a problem? These are the key issues that have been major public concerns. People look at this industry and say, why is that allowed to happen? And the inquire the issues paper. It's questions about DMFs are. You know, trivial. They're about, oh, well, if you move halfway through the year, should it only be half of the DMF for that year that you get charged? And should they have to provide estimates of your DMF before you move? Like, it, it's really barely scraping the sides um, of, of these key issues. So it's not getting at the biggest questions, much less the, the more fundamental questions about the industry that really need to be addressed. Um, we're also concerned in particular about the way it tackles dispute resolution. So one big thing for HAG and some of our partner organisations like Calc, CODA, Residents of Retirement Villages Victoria, over the last few years has been to argue for the need for an ombudsman for retirement housing. Um, and the, re the review, the parliamentary inquiry, sorry, did recommend that the government look into um, dispute resolution in the retirement housing sector. Uh, and it used the word ombudsman and it didn't say, you know, make an ombudsman, but it said look mm. into these options. Um, what the review's done is is carve out retirement villages. So when we say retirement housing, we don't just mean villages. We mean things like caravan and residential parks, rental villages, all kinds of housing that are designed for older people where there are, are very, you know, there's a range of common issues that make existing forms of dispute resolution like VCAT, uh, other kinds of court proceedings, inaccessible. The government said, oh, okay, well, you asked us to look at a retirement housing ombudsman. What we'll actually look at is an ombudsman for retirement villages. And when you narrow the scope down like that, mm. then it's easy to just say, well, there's not enough demand. Well, nobody ever asked you for this. And now you're yeah. saying there's not enough demand for it. Well, that's not surprising. <laughs> so anyway, so those are some of our key concerns. Um, but it's also an area where we know the public is very engaged. The parliamentary inquiry got, I think, 766 submissions, which is a, a very high number. Uh, and we're hoping to see a similar turnout from residents for this uh, for this as well. Well, if Josh Breidenberg got his way, I suppose all those residents still be out working and should be out working, according to Josh. Uh, I mean, I think it's more the... I mean, a lot of retirement village residents are quite rich, and I, don't, I assume the rich don't have to keep working, <laughs> so I think there might be a, a distortion there. The... Um, 
So, like I said, there's a consultation CAVA having this Friday in the city um, that you can register for at the Engage Media, Engage Victoria website. Um, HAG has its AGM. And that's being held where? You'd have to check the website for that <laughs> okay. one. Um, HAG, but what I'll I can tell you about, uh, HAG is having its AGM tomorrow. And if you want more detail about these reviews or you want to give us your feedback about what you think we should be putting into our submissions to the reviews, that will be a great opportunity. We'll also have some handouts that cover the key issues if you want to make your own submission. So the AGM starts at 11 tomorrow. We'll provide lunch. It's at mm. 247 to 251 Flinders Lane, Melbourne. It's quite close to Flinders Street Station. That's Ross House. Um, so that address again is 247 to 251 Flinders Lane in Melbourne uh, at 11 o'clock. And yep. we would love to see and you I, there. I cheered one of those once and I know that the lunch is wonderful. So Lunch is wonderful. Look, I, I don't know if I'd go that far. But lunch is all right. Um well, there you are. Well, you know, you in, you mentioned in relation to the um, the, the the rental act that um, it has things like what a landlord can't ask you, mm-hmm. etc. What sort of things are they? So, look, I, I'm not 100 percent across the details, so I might have some of this wrong. They they want according to the proposed regulations, they can't ask you whether you've ever taken a previous landlord to VCAT. Um, which sometimes comes up in applications. And obviously, if you say yes, you're going to be in a lot of strife. Um, you're not smart to put yes. Yeah, that's right. Um, you can't, they wouldn't be allowed to ask if you'd ever, like if you'd got your full bond back or not, because it's, you know, it's not necessarily a problem that you didn't get your full bond back. Um, they wouldn't be allowed to ask for unredacted bank statements, which I think is is a great improvement because mm. the extraordinary intrusion in your privacy when yeah. I, you know, I had to provide three months of bank statements, and you can see quite, quite a lot <laughs> about my personal life uh, there that I don't want my real estate knowing. The um, yeah, so yeah. there's there's quite a, a range. Yeah, and and I know that there's there's a very short time in which landlords are supposed in the proposal anyway. Landlords are supposed to provide. Um, to to fix to fix repairs if you make a complaint about something that really needs to be done, uh, but it seems to me that that's likely to be breached pretty much because um, landlords are going to find ways around it. I would think the um, the regulations don't really go into that. The Act does more. the 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 repairs procedures are stronger in the new version of the Act, so there's better protections to to kind of better options to kind of compel your landlord to do repairs. But you're right. Obviously, often landlords are, are recalcitrant about these things. Yeah. That's right, and, um, and well, we're out of time. Actually, we better go. Okay, that's it. Look, next month. All right, I can <laughs> I can just pick this rant up exactly where it left off. All right, off. Shane McGrath. Next month, we'll follow up on that one. How's it with the age? Thanks for coming in, and Eleanor McInerney, wonderful job. Thank you very much. Thanks. <laughs>